This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. How many commercials do you watch these days? <laughs> like in a given period of time or like this isn't a this, general. This isn't an Ipsos poll. Just like I'm tell trying me. to like remember like 13, 14 commercials. Just lately. Or do you mean know, 2013, on, 14? Whatever's on Hulu. Okay, that's fine. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I've there's a commercial right now that's bothering me and I just need to tell talk to you about it. Tell me more about it. It's a it's a commercial for ginger ale. Okay. Which should be innocuous enough, right? Ginger mm-hmm. ale is refreshing, it's a delicious drink. Right. No, like well every I mean we live in the old spice Geico age of ads where everything has to be weird as all get out. So and the worst. So what would you say if I told you that there's a Canada Dry ad where a woman goes to her kitchen and she reaches in the fridge to get a refreshing Canada Dry ginger ale and she can't pull it out because it's attached to a plant on a man's ginger farm and he pulls her into another dimension and now she lives on his ginger farm. I would not be surprised at all. How does she How does she react to being pulled away from her life and into this man's ginger farm? She seems really relaxed. Cool, because she's getting a nice cold uh, can of Canada Dry. I don't like that ginger ale disappears, people. Is it implied that she wanted to get away from her workaday life? Is it implied that this is on the same plane of existence and she can get back to her home and family and kids if she wanted to? Neither of those things are made clear. How do If you're her husband (laughs) or wife... I'm not I'm not I'm not here to judge or partner or partner like how do you explain to her family (laughs) like is it is this the new version of like oh he he went out for a pack of smokes and he never came back like oh she reached in the fridge for a can of ginger ale and we never saw her again She just loved that ginger ale so much. Jane I just did. Need, I need this to be more narratively rich than it ever could possibly I'm, be. Well, that's the thing is, I'm upset that there is no like, there isn't ten seconds of black and white footage preamble where she goes to a boring office job and takes the train every day and like some kid squirts apple juice on her. Mm-hmm. But like, there's no implication that she needs to be whisked away to another dimension so that she, she can just relax. wanted some ginger ale she just wanted some ginger ale but at what cost at what co- i now <laughs> now i don't have a mom <laughs> see it needs to be it needs to be one of those super bowl ads like that prius one that they were showing forever and may still be showing with all the people from the season of the wire that nobody likes there are sequels to that like, ad yes where it's a story ad i like that tells like an ongoing tale in like 45 second installments that you see over and over again over the space of three months. What's the difference between that and a webisode? 
um, I guess you choose to watch a webisode. <laughs> Do you? Well, I mean, if like if you were gonna see it, you would choose oh, to see. Oh, okay. It. it is a purely voluntary. Not, I mean, people act. don't choose to see webisodes typically, <laughs> but that's how it's supposed to work. Okay. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest because it's been bugging me every time I see that commercial. I'm really not every time. Like we since we started talking about doing a choose your own adventure. Oh yes. I still don't know how serious we're being. Like every time I think you tell you're... me a new story, I'm like, is that the hook? Is it the is it ginger ale lady? I think you started out more serious than me. Mm-hmm. And you're you're dragging me through the fridge to your farmland yep. <laughs> choose your own adventure Welcome. writing. Grab a rake, have a ginger ale. You work for me now. It ends with her like covered in dirt, like accepting this ginger ale from this man, except it's attached to a weed that he dragged out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Like he runs a farm that has whole bottles of ginger ale in the ground. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's not typically known, but like the ginger ale is the root of the plant. It's like a potato. And then above it is like leaves. So you have to like pull it out of the ground. And you have to like clean it off and, and you have to like send it. It, ta- it takes a while, which is uh, why most people prefer to get it from the farm, which is possibly like what this ad was trying to oh, convey. Lo- oh, locally grown. Locally sourced, yes. free range, free range, free, um, responsibly sourced. Wait, no cage, cage free. Cage free ginger ale. Grass fed ginger ale. Gra- <laughs> it comes... <laughs> It's like those brown chicken eggs that comes in a brown can. Let's talk about stories Ginger ale some more. and books. <laughs> uh, I read a book because every week one of us reads a book or like last week we both read a goofy book. I don't know. Uh, and one of us talks about it and then the other person learns a bit maybe or talks about or ginger. Or like does not. Or like, doesn't. On purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Stubbornly. Um, so this week... Uh, I read a play that I've had on my shelf for a good long time uh, called The Beggar's Opera by John Gay. And I've had it sitting there because it is actually, it is a ballad opera from 18th century England that inspired the Three Penny Opera. Is that a thing that you have ever heard of, Andrew? Do you know Three Penny Opera? I don't know. I'm assuming it's a cheap opera. Sort, yeah, that's the. It's like those dollar movies, like a red box. Well, or not like a red box, but like when they go to like the little crappy local theater and you go in and you see it for a dollar, like six months after mm. everyone else saw mm. it, or the bin of earnest movies that you find at the Walmart. <laughs> yeah, like the like Ernest goes to Walmart to buy a one dollar DVD, which yes. is the name of my favorite Ernest movie. <laughs> So the Three Penny Opera was written on the 200th anniversary of the Beggar's Opera. Um, I want to get out of the way. Oh, is it a specific opera? I thought it was like a genre of operas. What? The, no, the Three Penny Opera is an actual like show. Oh, that okay. Exists. I thought that the Three Penny Opera was a particular kind of opera. No, 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 no. It is. It is a you know an early 20th century update of this exact story that we're going to talk about today. Um, you, Andrew, know the song "Mac the Knife." I do. Pop- don't ask how. Don't ask how, except like pop culture, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes from the Three Penny Opera, written by Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Vile. So okay, 
uh, that's kind of how people know it. That is a retelling of this story, which is, a, as I said, it's a ballad opera, which means that uh, John Gay wrote it with, like, he wrote it, and then right before it opened, this guy, John Christopher Pepish, um, was, like, or Johan Pepish, like, decided to flesh out the music that they were using, which was basically, like, we took a bunch of songs that everybody knows and rewrote the words and mm-hmm. called it an opera. The weird Al Yankovic of his day. <laughs> uh-huh. Satirical Al Yankovic. <laughs> well, hey, Weird Al is doing some satire, right? Isn't he? I mean, if you consider changing the words of songs to all be about pizza, then yeah, he's doing amazing satire. I, man, I really want to counteract you, but I like literally am blanking. But you know you can't. You know you can't. It's all about pizza. It's food all the way down. Yeah, the food album's pretty good. <laughs> My favorite Weird Al parody <laughs> is not actually a Weird Al parody, but it's one that 30 Rock made up. Oh, okay. And they say that he rewrote uh, Susudio to be called Soup Supio. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically where I'm coming from. That's where you're coming from. That's good. I, yeah. Uh, I had Weird Al tapes when I was a kid. That's a, I was a dedicated fan. I bet you did. You're all about the Pentiums. <laughs> that's what... <laughs> That's what I was trying to think of. What I was trying to tell you was there aren't all about pizza. There's that one Some about... Some of them are about computer processors. Or no, when you're totally absolutely yeah, right. When he sang that American Pie song about being a Jedi, because everyone loved the first those Star Wars prequels. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. It's a rare time when he changed a song that was about food to be about not food. <laughs> okay. What do you know about John Gay? Help me about out as much as I know about Three Penny <laughs> Opera. Um, I know that uh, John Gay was he was born in 1685 and died in 1732. So that's kind of the era that we're operating in. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an English poet and dramatist, and he was a member of something called the Scribblerus Club. Yeah, which I wanted to be more interesting than it was. I, me too. It's a it's like a loose group of. Authors including uh, Gay and Jonathan Swift and Alexander Pope, um, the latter of whom was gay, one of Gay's close friends. Um, and this was like a loose association of authors that ran from 1714 to 1745. And uh, they were known particularly for their sat- their satire. Um, sure. They were known to occasionally write as like a group under the pseudonym of Martinus Scriblerus. <laughs> though uh not not like a ton of this material was published like i found evidence of one volume of something called the memoirs of martinus scribblerus which was written primarily by john arbuthnot all these uh, names had, sound great yeah that had a uh, one volume published in 1741 but like not a ton of other stuff it seems like mostly they were there to just like bounce ideas off of one another because a lot of gays work was either suggested by others or he collaborated with others in this group so it seems like a like a fruitful creative partnership but maybe they didn't work together as a group on like a ton of stuff and i i know they're like people who've studied british literature might be more familiar with alexander pope than i am like all i know about him is that he did some some translations of homer and wrote about shakespeare Right, um, and and Jonathan Swift um, yes, famously yes. did the indecent proposal. Is that the name of it? The one about eating babies? I think it was just called. 
a modest proposal, a not modest an proposal. indecent proposal. No, okay, I'm getting something. I'm getting that confused with something else. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is. I don't know either. Let's not get. Let's not worry about it. <laughs> he also modest didn't proposal, he also right? Write Gulliver's was, yeah. Travels. Uh yes. You look that up while I remind everyone that decent modest proposal. Dang it. Yeah. Now it's uh, in your head. Is the one where he proposed that uh, satirically, and some people didn't get it. That you could solve the famine uh, by having people eat their children. I think it was yeah, the Gulliver's Irish Travels. Famine. Yeah, Gulliver's Travels. Did. Okay. He seems like the Justin Timberlake of the Martinist Scribblist Society. <laughs> and everyone else is a solid Lance Bass. Is he in the same group as them? Who, Lance Bass? Yeah, which group was he? I th- uh, O-Town, I think. <laughs> Pretty sure it was O-Town. And Justin Timberlake was the lead of 98 Degrees, right? Right, and him and um, Puffy and Combs, like, yeah, Puffy Combs, Puffy Sean Diddy Combs, and uh, Coolio. Michael Phelps was there, and and then they like they broke up and then later reformed uh, to form Ninety Nine Degrees, uh huh, which is yes. the sequel yes. band, and they which sang... is my it's it's one of my favorite bands, but I think the Beatles too is a better. Is my favorite sequel band. I think of my all time. Yeah, my favorite Weird Al album is actually when he just did all of Ninety Nine Degrees songs word for word. <laughs> but people thought it was satire because <laughs> the songs really were not. They weren't. Yeah, weren't that good. Uh, do you have anything else about yeah, Mister Mister huh? John Gay? Um, I know that he was briefly apprenticed to a silk merchant. Sure, but he got bored with it, and so he went. He, he I know he was born. In a town called Barnstaple, which is a cool town name. Uh huh. Um, he wrote a skit called "What Do You Call It?" <laughs> uh huh. That was apparently, and and maybe we can talk a little about this. This this skit was apparently so clever and or obtuse that other authors basically published like a strategy guide to help people <laughs> understand. He was, and I guess my yeah. my question for you about like satire in general is. Can it be too clever for you? Like if people have a mm. like I know you I, I know that making fun of people who think onion articles are real is kind of a fun pastime for yeah. a lot of people. And yeah. like far be it for me to 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 jeez, I don't even know. Far be it for me to ruin anybody's fun because sometimes people who think the onion articles are real are funny because <laughs> obviously it's not real. But I think there is such a thing as like too dry. Like, let me throw throw, throw this out there. Like, Please. I think Andy Borowitz is. Oh like, yeah. I think that his articles are real all the time because I can't tell that there are jokes. Yeah, this is Andy Borowitz in the New Yorker. There are uh-huh. multiple times in the past year where I have read a headline on the internet and been like, okay, let me read that. And midway through, I am filled with such despair that I remember and then you to go scroll check up the and byline. It's got that stupid, oh god! But he's he's like the onion for your your accountant uncle or something. Like yeah. just, I, that's the kind of satire. I'm like, no, thank you. But but then the other side of the spectrum is the worst of South Park. I think like. 
I have not. It's just like where it's a political cartoon and everything has like a big label scrawled on it. So you can definitely tell what everything is supposed to be. Yeah. And I feel like there was a period of time where they were firing on all cylinders. And when they were being that blunt, it was it was in keeping with whatever they were satirizing. Mm -hmm. But there were too many that just were like, well, we're just going to turn whatever we're making fun of into a metaphor for poop. Like. And I just kind of lost that's interest. That's what's funny, Craig. That's well, what humor is. That's what the kids like, I guess. The p- poop joke is the platonic ideal of humor. It's true. Mm-hmm. Let me go back to the first 10 minutes of this podcast and edit in more poop jokes. Do you not do that every week? I see. I don't listen to the ones that you do. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't maybe, don't, maybe don't start. <laughs> I have like a whole wacky I was morning what DJ soundboard. about. I was getting all these tweets. I work like a bunch of toilet flush sounds like into everything and like, oh yeah, that guy's (laughs) everywhere. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is with satire. I feel like... (laughs) What's the deal with satire? I feel like, like complete works of satire, we don't have a lot of those anymore. Well, because, and again, going back to The Onion, I feel like... The like my most common criticism of it is that the headline is the joke, and then you can read like the, the six hundred words that they wrote about it, where they make the sure. same joke over and over again. But do you need a complete work of satire? Sure, sure. I think it works best when it's just when it's just short. And I, I feel like when it gets longer, and I there's some of this in the Beggar's Opera, and it's one of the things that I actually am not sure about on how you present it. But I feel like when it gets past that, that like basically the length of modest proposal really, um, or a solid skit or, you know, fake news diatribe or whatever it might be, you have to start leavening your satire with actual like heartfelt content. And then, and then you have to, artfully oscillate between the two and then nobody's sure. that skilled <laughs> like yeah, just... no, even, even even modest proposals is like by the time you're four or five pages in it's like you're so you're still it's still about uh about eating babies huh like yeah but there but i think at the time the thoroughness of it was like what threw people off sure 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 the goal is to I get, get people to think it's real Right. Orson Welles War of the World style. But would you read a The Onion feature story about something? Like a like a no. four hundred word <laughs> one of those New York Times. long read. <laughs> yeah. We spent three months putting together this digital experience. That was like a thinly veiled commentary on the pro life movement or something. Oh God. I don't think I could. Uh, <laughs> so we can start talking about this story a little bit because um, we've been wasting your time long enough. We've I suppose been wasting a lot of time, but but on the other hand, on the other hand, we have been recording for twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, we've been having a good time. I know. No, it's great. I'm saying like forty, thirty-five, forty minutes to go, my friend. Oh yeah, you're just looking at the end. You can see it. You're TikTok, looking, buddy. You're looking for that exit ramp. <laughs> Um, so this play, this opera was pub was like first produced in 1728. And as I said, uh, when they were initially doing it, the goal was just to have the 69 songs that are in it just like sung without accompaniment. And it's to be produced in this like rudimentary kind of lo-fi style 
that was supposed to appeal to the lower classes. Um, and it's also at, in that way, it's also satirizing Italian opera, which I'm like, I don't know enough about Italian opera to tell you like why at that point in time they decided to make fun of it. Um, but apparently it was very big in England up until the mid 18th century. Italian opera or making fun of Italian opera? Opera in general. Okay. Um, and then uh, Handel, Handel um, stopped writing opera in 1741. And English people, that seems to be a tipping point for English people not being into opera anymore. Maybe. I don't know. Um, and then this kind of takes off as the ballad opera, which then has direct ties to uh Gilbert and Sullivan and then carry that forward into you know the modern musicals that we know today sure um this was it cobbled together from a couple of different influences there was a guy named Jonathan Wild who is referred to as like the thief taker general okay uh who was he would like bribe he took bribes, he fenced stolen goods, and then also had a like a way to influence who was or was not gonna get like killed for crimes. So okay. he would like bribe prison guards to release the thieves that he knew were like doing a good job, but then the ones that he was done, he would like let them die. Hmm. Um Thief Taker is a really cool name for the job description of like Taking thieves of catching thieves. Yeah, his Wikipedia article lists his occupations as carpenter, buckle maker, debtor, convict, fence, thief, and thief taker. So he he was multiclassing like a son of a gun. Yeah, I Um, feel like uh, I feel like the the line between thieves and thief takers is pretty. It's like the line between journalism and PR. It's just too. It's too thin ooh, for comfort. Ooh. You can't it's... trust any of them, uh, All right? Yep. And there's also a guy named Jack Shepard, not from Lost, but uh, or Jack from Sh- Mass Effect. Yeah, uh, good call. Um, but Jack Shepard was theoretically, we believe, kind of a gallant honor, you know, honorable thief whose main claim to fame was breaking out of prison a lot. And he ultimately met his end thanks to Jonathan Wild. Okay. Um, and Jonathan Wild's exploits uh, were believed to be allowed by Sir Robert Walpole, who people consider the first prime minister of England as we know the office today. Yeah, I read a little bit about him, and that's basically what I can tell you. Is actually, he sounds like he was a pretty good politician like pretty successful at at going middle of the road and and assembling a big political coalition and just getting a lot done that way but Mm -hmm. um the beggar's opera is definitely satirizing it's targeting him primarily um to the point where actually there was a sequel that gay was working on and um, its po- its production was pr- forbidden by the Lord Chamberlain. Yes, and people usually think that that's because of Walpole. Yeah, but um, it backfired a little bit because the the publicity that was brought to it by the act of forbidding it made like the published version very successful. Well, that makes sense. 
Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, the Lord, the Lord Chamberlain, I don't know that that still exists in England today. It might not. But that's like a huge deal for a long period of time where that office gets to like veto plays that get performed at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and a similar thing, we're doing Mrs. Warren's Profession at, at my theater in Philly soon. And that's another play that was banned by the Lord Chamberlain. And its first run was done like in a private club so they could get away mm-hmm. with it. And then they took it to the United States and it was a huge success and then brought it back. And that's another piece of theatrical satire that's uh, critiquing wealth and social classes like this uh like this play is mm-hmm. um andrew i want to get into the plot but first i have a quick quiz for you Ooh, hit me so the beggar's opera is widely considered as one of the first jukebox musicals <laughs> okay uh, do you know what that term means it means like the annoy the, the musicals that your annoying friends get up and do songs from at karaoke so <laughs> Sort of. It, <laughs> it is. It's the phenomenon of musicals that are like assemblages of songs people know already into a theatrical production. So, oh, not, like across the universe. Yeah, across the universe is a good example. Um, that I don't like across the universe. Don't <laughs> don't let my knowledge that it exists come across as endorsement because it is definitely not. Okay, uh, and like we said, this this theatrical event the beggar's opera used pre-existing songs that the audience was supposed to already know and be able to hum along with and then Mm -hmm. like when the words were different that creates kind of you know that's exciting for an audience member like any parody songs like that and it's it's funny we talked about weird al for so long um that can be exciting for an audience if you know the songs already but i have a couple names of shows jukebox musicals of the late 20th century i'm going to mm-hmm. say their name and i want you to see if you can guess whose music it is okay first one should be a gimme okay, okay. we'll see abacadabra it's from abba yeah the music of abba <laughs> uh-huh uh saturday night fever uh the bgs yeah yeah we will rock you uh queen yes that is the queen musical mama mia Mamma Mia. Um, it's ABBA again. It's ABBA again. Because I saw in theaters the Meryl Streep version okay. of that. Okay. That had old Pierce Brosnan in it. And I got a, oh, I had a weird reaction to it. Yeah. yeah. He is. He's one of the dads. <laughs> it made it sound like you had an allergic reaction to it. <laughs> I think I maybe did. <laughs> so I was, and I was texting Susanna about this yesterday. Meryl Streep is a wonderful actress who is constantly in like C plus B minus rom coms for no reason that I can tell. Yep. Like, what what are you doing with Alec Baldwin, Meryl Streep? Slap Get out a, of there. Slap a Meryl Streep on it. It'll sell. That's what people are saying. Mm-hmm. Moving out, Andrew. Moving on out. Jefferson's. No. <laughs> I would know. We were looking for Billy Joel. Oh, William Joel. William, Sir William Joel. Joel. I don't think. Okay. No, nope, uh, just keep Jersey Boys. Uh, Bruce Springsteen? Frankie Valley. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's. Well, the Jersey Boy guess. is the prequel to Jersey Boys. He's which the is, original yeah. Jersey Boy. Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Um, Hot Feet. Uh, I don't know. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, cool. Uh, Sunshine on Leaf. Earth, Wind, and Fire again. 
The Proclaimers. Wait, what? Yeah, I don't... Yep. Is the whole thing just 500 miles? Do they have enough songs for a whole concept musical? God, I hope it's just that song 20 times. Uh, 500 Uh, times. Last but not least, Andrew, there are two answers, the two possible answers to this, I think, and only Mm -hmm. one of them is right. Wait. Good Vibrations. Oh, uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. <laughs> we were looking for the Beach Boys, but in I my heart, Beach Boys, in my I, heart, it was I Marky wanted Mark. it to be Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg, so, get that Funky Bunch back together. <laughs> the world needs a Funky Bunch. I I don't think I enjoy jukebox musicals, though I can appreciate the artistry and craft it takes to make them. Um, I. It depends on what you mean by appreciate, I guess. We don't need to get too far into the concept musical that we did in college called Urgent, The Foreigner Story. We don't which, need to. Which was me, like I had watched Across the Universe with Susanna over Christmas break or something. And I was like, this is stupid. I could take a greatest hits album from like Foreigner and make it into a musical. Is that where it came from? It is 100% where it came from. Yes. I thought it came out of Pankin's head, but that's no, fine. No, it came out of my head, and then he took it and ran with it okay. a little bit. Well, that's a thing that we did. Yeah. Anyway, it's really easy to do and also maybe a little lazy. Oh, because you just take song <laughs> titles and you string them together until you have something that could pass as a story, and then cha-ching. Yeah, and, and the thing that... With that paper. The thing that tends to rub me the wrong way about most jukebox musicals is that i don't think those songs were meant to be performed with like a narrative hook in mind no of course they're not. like they're not the people singing them are not characters so no that like never the song quite dancing lands. queen is not like about like dancing like a, being a dancing queen i mean she was only 17 andrew oh god shut up <laughs> so in this uh, in this play, this opera, the songs, the lyrics are re-wi- rewritten, so they occasionally are talking about characters directly, but a lot of times they are just kind of, it, it's, it'll say the name of a popular 17th century song that you should know, uh, like, Oh, the Broom, and then there's some lyrics that, you know, one of the characters would sing. Just in my head, I started seeing, you know, those commercial, those old commercials for, like, Greatest yes. hits CDs, yes. yes, and that whole like the, the whole scroll happens, and then yes. the song that's playing is highlighted, lighted in yellow. Like it, that's the that's the frame of mind that your voice just put me in. Yes, I want that. Okay, so let's get into the plot of this thing. Please, uh, if you know the Three Penny Opera, you're listening to this, you'll be surprised or not surprised at all to find that it's basically <laughs> Those that are the options, or basically it's basically that story. <laughs> um. So we start out with three primary characters. There's Mr. Peachum, there's Mrs. Peachum, and there's Polly Peachum. And Mr. Peachum is the one who's based off of our friend Jonathan Wild. He is some sort of accountant. He is a fencer, which that means that you're, you know, reselling stolen goods. Um, and he is a thief taker. Excuse me. And we and know th- which of the which of the characters is is taking off um, Robert Walpole. Uh, there's a brief reference to a man named Bob Booty. 
<laughs> That's a really good name. Which is apparently a nickname that people gave Robert Walpole. <laughs> Bob Booty. <laughs> I'd love to get that nickname. Yeah, it's a pretty good nickname. I don't think it was meant to be flattering, but even if it's not, it's a pretty great nickname. It's flattering now. It's aged very well. <laughs> I would love to be in someone's phone as Bob Booty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Peachum starts the show uh, talking about all of the different thieves that uh, he is concerned with and whether or not they're going to deliver on the fenced goods that he needs to make good money, um, whether or not he should send them to the gallows because they're not going to deliver. Um, this includes folks like Bob Booty, Tom Tipple, <laughs> Robin of Bagshot, Harry Paddington, <coughs> Wat Dreary, alias good names, alias Brown Will, <laughs> you know the names. Uh huh. Um, and Miss Peachum comes in, and she's asking some questions about Bob Booty, just you know passing the time. <laughs> They've already sung a couple of songs by now, mostly about like how like easily influenced women are. How are the songs and, represented on the page? Like, is it is it telling you, do you just have lyrics? Is it telling you what, like, the tune of the song, like, what it's set to? So I presume if I was up on my 17th century, like, ragtimes, or which, what, you rag, not. Yeah, which I'm not, um, I would recognize the tune when it says, the bonnie gray-eyed morn, etc., which is what this edition says. Okay. And then there's some lyrics sung by the next character. Uh, at one point, um, Mac Heath, who is the you know inspiration for Mac the Knife, he does sing a tune to the tune of Green Sleeves, which is pretty great. Uh, and that's you know I re- I recognize that one. Uh, I didn't recognize the other ones though. Okay. So Miss Peachum comes in and she's got some bad news for Mister Peachum. She tells him that their daughter Polly is in love with Captain McKeith and Uh-oh. that they might be getting married. They might already be married. They're not sure. Um, and this is bad because apparently Mr. Peachum has been like, he's not afraid to use his daughter to like interact with some of the criminals he needs. Uh, it's not really clear what those relationships are. And it's pretty unclear as to whether or not Polly is like a good person. Okay. Um, everyone else is terrible. <laughs> and like there's a question mark over Polly's head for the entire play. Mm-hmm. Um, so they call uh, Polly in and she's like, yeah, I love him. Um, and we're definitely married. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so the Peachums realize that this is pretty bad because not only are they then beholden to MacEath because uh, he's he would be their son-in-law, but like he gets all his money from gambling and robbing people, which is not a great way to get money, like on the books anyway. Right. Uh, there's. A I mean, reason- maybe. I mean, I think it is a like if you were just trying to get money, I think probably it is a pretty good way to do it. But yeah, sure. In the, eyes of, in the eyes of society, yes. probably it's frowned upon. And what's happening here society. from, from the get-go is that Peachum has already been set out in the first 10 pages as kind of a jackhole. 
and <laughs> McKeith is this like honorable criminal who all he does is like love women and steal from people. Like that's the that's the that's all he does, Andrew. He's a good guy. It's the it's the people who run the system who are corrupt. Of course. And steal from the thieves. They they're the thief takers. Mm-hmm. They're the bad guys and they exploit their daughters. So uh Mr. and Mrs. Peachum come up with this plan and they try to convince Polly to take part. They're like, hey, listen, McKeith's a he's a criminal. He might have two or three other wives already. Sure. Uh that's just a thing that criminals do. He's so a wife taker. He is <laughs> uh you should probably like kill him. Like we should probably hang him so that you can get his money. Okay. If Checks you're already out. if you're already married to him. Mm-hmm. That would be a good plan. Uh and she sings the song about how like she can't do that because she's in love with him. Um, and she like runs out of the room and they're like, well, looks like she's not going to help. We're going to have to take care of this ourselves. We tried. Uh, and she's been listening on the other side of the door and she goes, oh crap, they're going to kill my husband. Uh, I better go get him and tell him about this plan. I've been hiding him in my room this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) And he, she brings him in and they, uh, sing some songs to each other about loving themselves and, being into each other aren't her parents gonna hear no they they went out to go make the plans to kill him i see i did not know if this is one of those musicals where like people are bursting in the songs all the time but like nobody comments upon it no they they respond directly to lyrics um but people are bursting into song all the time okay uh it's it in that way, I guess that it's still supposed to be making fun of opera and the arbitrariness of people singing in opera mm-hmm. and how silly that is. I mean, I think there are some people like TV shows or musicals or whatever that still try and do that, that like make fun of that that thing at the core of a lot of like classic musicals where people just s- step to the front of the stage and say, here's what I've got to say about that. And then they sing yeah. a song. Yes. But sometimes that, sometimes making fun of that, like the line between making fun of it and just also doing it is pretty thin. <laughs> Again, yeah, you can't, there, you can only do much satire, so much satire before you just embrace the thing you're making fun before of. Before you're making a Borowitz musical. <laughs> okay. Yes, that's true. Please do not make an Andy Borowitz oh, musical. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Um, so she tells him the plan that they're going to kill him and that he has to run away, that they probably can't run away together, but that in a few weeks she can meet up with him. And there's this like exchange at the end of the act where I, I you get this sense that maybe, maybe McKeith, maybe we're not sure about him. Um she goes, you know, go away. I'll see you in three weeks. And he goes, must I then go? She goes, and will not absence change your love? And she's like, hey, like, you're still going to be into me, right? And he goes, if you doubt it, let me stay and be hanged. So, <laughs> Matt Keith is already playing the field on his way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, total total stand-up guy, our hero, McKeith. Uh-huh. Act two, we get to meet more of these uh, robber boys. Uh, I want to read some of these names to you, Andrew. Jimmy Twitcher, Crookfingered Jack, (laughs) Nimming Ned, Ben Budge, 
Matt of the Mint, and some of our good friends Robin of Bagshot, Henry Paddington, and Wat Dreary. Man, so would not want to be in anybody's phone as any of those names. <laughs> no. Bob Booty's still give the best. Give me Bob Booty or give me death. Uh, so these are all of Mac Heath's boys. They're hanging out, and he says, like, hey, listen, I know you're going to go out and rob some folks, but, like, Peachum is still really useful to us, and since he's on my trail, I have to lay low. Why don't you guys go out and have some fun, um, which they do. And then he says some stuff about women that, again, it's a satire. But it's from the seventeenth. It's from the eighteenth century. So, like, do how do we feel about this? I don't know. Um, he sings this song where it goes: "If the heart of a man is depressed with cares, the mist is dispelled when a woman appears. Like the notes of a fiddle, she sweetly, sweetly raises the spirits and charms our ears." And that sounds kind of nice, right? Unless and like, you're doing it like, and you're like mugging at the audience and and whatever, like. You know what yeah, I mean? yeah, because then it gets a little more specific where he's like, roses and lilies, her cheeks disclose, but her ripe lips are more sweet than those. Press her, caress her with blisses, her kisses, dissolve us in pleasure in soft repose. So it's not just that she's like there and making you feel good. She's like making you feel good. Good. He, yeah, right. Like in the in the underpants areas. Yeah. And then he says, I must have women. There is nothing unbends the mind like them. Money is not so strong a cordial for the time. And then he asks the porter if there are any ladies about, and he goes and gets some. So, again. Like from the the back? Like from the (laughs) storeroom? You know, he basically is like, oh, well, there are some downstairs. I'll go get them for you. So, yes, exactly what I said. Yeah, okay. Uh, And these ladies include Mrs. Coaxer. Dolly Troll, Mrs. Vixen, Betty Doxy, Jenny Diver, Suki Tawdry, <laughs> Molly Brazen, and my favorite, Mrs. Slamkin. Whoa. Whoa. Dang. <laughs> Dang is right. Uh, so then they all hang Those out. Are people with- you would want to have in your phone. <laughs> Let me. I need. Uh, I need to change a tire. Let me call Mrs. Slamkin. Help me out. <laughs> uh, so these ladies hang out with McKeith in this bar for a while. They talk, and from what I can tell, the language is like supposed to read as very refined, in a way that like they are not refined ladies. They are ladies of the night. They are pickpockets. They spend most of the time talking about the men that they've had and exploited and found ways to like outsmart so um, the the fact they are talking like refined people is played up for laughs mostly because yes. of the stuff that they are talking about exactly gotcha. um talking like they are ladies at court about you know getting extra money out of a guy in a brothel um and then it goes sour uh a couple of them go in for a kiss with mckeith one of them gives the signal and Peachum and some constables like burst in through the door and they arrest McKeith. So I don't know what they arrested him for except being McKeith. Mm-hmm. And this is like the the part of thief takers that only sort of makes sense. Yeah, I don't know that due process was necessarily <laughs> a part of 
the procedure around this time. No, it's like, I'm going to let you be a criminal until the stuff you steal isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to throw you in jail. So I guess it's like, I guess it's like when mobs are like offering you, like when the mafia is offering you protection and they do, they make you sign up for protection by breaking your windows. Like, wouldn't it be a shame if something happened to your store? Sure. By us, if you didn't pay us. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think usually when they do that, like they don't say, wouldn't it be awful if we broke your knees right <laughs> <No>. now? <laughs> it's well, a little the, more veiled than that i the the guys this first day of the job that's what the guy says and then imagine he though like andy borowitz as a mobster and you would just have no idea <laughs> Jeez. yeah i mean it would be it would be unfortunate if something happened to my windows you're right i read about it in the magazine yeah well talk to you later <laughs> so then uh McKeith ends up in jail, and wouldn't you know, the jailer's name is Mr. Lockett. <laughs> and his daughter's name is Lucy, so Lucy Lockett. Lucy Lockett. Yep. Sounds like a children's toy. It sounds actually. like Polly Pocket's cousin, yes. yeah. Well, and Polly Peachum, right? This is, mm-hmm. all these names are great. Uh, they were just writing this for the merchandise. That's, well, there was merchandise, Andrew. Did you hear about this? No. Let's, what? Let's get, let's get derailed here for a second. Oh, the no, because we've, we've been really on target so far, so I feel okay with this. I know. Lavinia Fenton, who played the first Polly Peachum, is largely credi- like credited with how popular it was. Like People wanted her picture. The People wrote her poems. There were books published about her, like people were like getting her silhouette on like playing cards and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah. People pine for pictures and poems and playing cards of Polly Peachum. That's good. You should go into the theater. That's pretty good. I should. Red <laughs> red leather, yellow leather. Good blood, bad blood. Um say that really fast. Good blood, bad blood. Good blood, bad blood. Red leather, good yellow blood, leather. Bad good blood, blood, bad blood. Good blood, bad blood. <laughs> So in jail, we learn that uh, MacKeith also promised to marry Lucy Lockett. Whoops. Dang. And she's pretty pissed about it because he's in jail and everyone knows that he is married to Polly Peachum. And he says to Lucy that Polly's crazy and he's definitely not married to her. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's in love with Lucy and he will definitely marry her if he gets out of jail. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, hey, baby. He'll, he'll definitely for it. do it. <laughs> so she resolves to like steal the keys from her dad, Mr. Lockett. Um, and before that happens, Polly comes in and there's like this kind of love triangle scene where the two women uh like sing angrily at each other and McKeith's like, Well, if you're both just gonna yell at me, I'm not gonna say anything. Uh <laughs> And that doesn't really resolve. Like, Peachum comes in and catches her there and, like, drags her out. Uh, and the act ends. And the next act begins with Lucy arguing with her dad because he's like, what, why'd you let him free? <laughs> like, why did you do that? And she confesses that she's in love with him, that they're going to get married. And, of course, no one questions. Like, neither Peachum nor Lockett seem to care 
of about the legality of these marriages. Mm-hmm. They just know that uh, McKeith's worth money. So if their daughters are married to him, they need to get that money. Right. Get paid. Get paid. They need to get paid because they get went the through the trub- trouble of having these daughters, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lockett's concerned that Peachum is going to get is going to like keep him from getting his money. Uh, so she has to like take care of Polly so that Polly doesn't have any claim to McKeith's money. Whew. McKeith, meanwhile, has escaped. He's laying low. Uh, and while Lucy tries to poison Polly, because that's a rational way to get things done, Mm -hmm. uh, they see that McKeith has actually been rounded up again by Lockett and Peachum who've joined forces with the plan to split the the money uh, after they like convinced a drunk lady to tell them where he hides so uh, it ends with McKeith in jail and the two women singing to him saying hey look we would rather be killed with you than watch you just die on your own and then the jailer comes in and says, McKeith, there are four other women here who also claim to be your wives, and they're all pregnant. And McKeith says, tell the hangman that I'm ready. <laughs> Jeez, okay. Womp womp. And uh, then we get this like reprise of the... It's sort of a framing device. It seems like some editions of this play leave it out. There is a player and a beggar that appear at top and do the kind of stereotypical, like, if this offends you, like, that was sort of the point. Or mm-hmm. if not, like, if you're bored by you, like, we're sorry. If you're bored by it, we're sorry. Um, they come out again, and the player's like, I mean, this doesn't, this isn't really how it ends, right? Like, that's pretty dark. Mm-hmm. And the beggar goes, well, yeah, I mean, if this were an actual moral tale, he would die. He would just get it. Mm -hmm. But the audience doesn't want that. They want a happy ending. So they change the script, and he gets to live, and everyone dances and celebrates his wedding to Polly. Okay. End of play. Great. So there's so, this like indictment. Okay. There's an indictment of the audience at the end, where like y'all can't handle the real ending. So here's our fakey fake version. And, Have fun. And you're all corrupt jerks who love all of these criminals. Right. And then they play celebration by cool and the gang and they have a big party and then the curtains fall that's actually the name of the cool and the gang jukebox musical mm-hmm. celebration by cool yes. and the gang <laughs> a cool in the gang musical a cool in the gang musical <laughs> so yeah it's you know it's a thing that exists it's a story about okay. government corruption and uh the bad guys that are in the system taking advantage of generic bad guys so as as we wind down like did does that satire still come through like is it still effective as a work of satire like what 300 years down the road i don't and i i don't think what's interesting is i don't think that you are supposed to like just pick up and perform this script as it exists anymore um 
to answer your question, I think the basic framework of the story still works as satire. Um, as satire of the like hypocrisy of these two men of office and how they treat their daughters versus how like the you know the less fortunate women in the community have to handle their business um how they are criminals themselves and yet they are locking up criminals and determining their fate left and right mm-hmm. i think that still plays i think you can lean into an economic bent with that you can lean into uh, a more general class bent with that but i don't know that the music plays in a modern sense i was yeah reading... i think you'd have to change it all to be about uh, to be like 90s pop songs now you could you certainly you could um i was reading about a production that the barbican had done the royal shakespeare company had done at the barbican in like 93 they took the original melodies but then they set it all to like rock music like you could probably do that because it's Mm -hmm. mostly folk melodies Mm -hmm. um i was listening to a cast recording and it it was just that i mean some of those songs might be fun but it it was like i don't know man it was like real stereotypical British drinking song stuff. Yeah, right. That is so deep in what it is that I wasn't getting the jokes. Like I don't, I don't know where the joke of it was. Okay. Um, not to say that like someone singing in front of me couldn't make it funny, like in their performance. Yeah, but it, right. It doesn't play to the ear right now. So yeah, I, and I've even seen productions of Three Penny. Um, I don't think we've done any Brecht on the show, but there's like a whole so. conversation to be had about what Brecht was up to in terms of reminding you at every step of the way that you were in a theater watching a play, watching a musical. Um, and that was actually supposed to help you synthesize the satire. His whole like theory about the alienation effect of art... Um, I think I'm using that term right. I might be wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't was care. that was that by like putting up super titles and by like constantly reminding you of the artifice that you wouldn't care about the characters, but the like the rub is that his characters are actually pretty interesting mm-hmm. and people do care about them. So he kind of shot himself in the foot there. <laughs> but the plays are still good. So like. And that some of that music is still good, but I would still like to hear like reorchestrations or modern orchestrations more so than just like the straight Kurt Vile stuff. So, okay. um, I'm glad I read this because I was like, I, I was like, oh, I've I've had this for a while, and didn't realize how faithful it was um, to Three Penny or vice versa. Sure, um, which is kind of neat. Yeah, that's okay. what I got. Nice satire. Yeah, there you have it. As have we like what other satires have we read? Just like real quick, I know like there's some of Goon Squad that I keep thinking about, but that whole book isn't satire. There are elements of it. We can hope that like Fifty Shades was supposed to be satire. No, I don't know. And there was nobody. It was so subtle that nobody picked up on it this whole time. I like honestly I when I when people ask me like oh what's your favorite book that you read for the show I have to go to the iTunes list and like yeah yeah because I don't like at this point we've just done so much that 
Yeah, it's true. It, like with with the exception of like half a dozen or like like five or ten big ones, I just can't remember like at instant recall all the stuff that we've done at this point. So that's true. That's yeah. true. It might come up again when we get to Infinite Jest if there's okay. room in that discussion for it. Sure. Um, We're gonna have to make room for a lot of stuff. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what we'll see what sticks, but. Uh, if you, the listener out there, have a favorite Weird Al song that we didn't talk about, um, or you know more about what this play was actually satirizing that we didn't cover, please let us know on social media. Uh, use twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. I want to thank everybody who's done that in the last week or so. That includes Albi, Rebecca, Chris, Michael, Erica, Sarah, Liz, Lucas, uh, Kara, Carrie, I think, who was actually listening to our Of Mice and Men episode. <laughs> that's that's episode one. Good on you. Uh, Mr. J, Margaret, Jess, Alexander, Taylor, Bookish Aff, Gay, Jennifer, Melissa, uh, Rob, Melanie, Claire, uh, Starfish Chick, Sean, Maria, Rachel, uh, Cast and Found, and Elizabeth. You can also write us emails at overduepod at gmail.com. We get those and try to answer them as we can, and we're starting to stockpile some of them, too, for future episodes. Andrew, if folks want to learn more about the show, where should they go? They can all go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Um, Up there, we have links to the books that we are going to read, the ones that we have read. We're normally a little bit uh, more fastidious about doing that, but like lately with infinite jest coming up and the live show that just happened like we've just kind of been flying by the seat of our pants a little bit so we'll we'll get back on that train but for now it might be a little more inconsistent than normally is uh we have links to itunes google play stitcher rss all things you can use to subscribe to the show if you do subscribe in itunes rate and review us because we like reading them and because it helps the show rise in the rankings which helps people find us we do not really do a lot of advertising for the show other than like word of mouth so tell anything yeah, anything you do to like help us become more discoverable is that that's how we grow. Um, what else? We have links to Headgum, our podcast network, Spreaker, our podcast hosts, our Patreon project, which you you can uh, use to recommend us books and to support us financially. If you think that the things that we do with our mouths are worth money, <laughs> um, I think that's yeah. that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, I thought, oh, man, I thought I had something else, but I don't. It's gone. Sure. Um, I'm reading a couple of things right now, and I'm not sure, like, what's going to be show-worthy and, what, and what's not. Um, right now, I'm reading. Actually, I have to look it up. That's cool. You can look it up. We'll make time for you to do that while I maybe fill the dead air. Probably not. <laughs> right now, as I as I work on Infinite Jest, I'm also reading something shorter called. Uh, so I'm watching Halt and Catch Fire, or I just, like just finished the first oh, two yeah. seasons of it, and um, it got me looking around for good books about like the invention of the personal computer. Basically, I'm reading something by Rod Canyon, C A N I O N, mm. called um, Open, which is a story about like Compaq and some of the earliest. Oh, neat PCs. Now, I don't know if I'm actually going to end up talking about it on the show because I think I would mostly be talking about its problems, but I'm kind (laughs) of casting around for something succinct in that vein that could get us talking about like stuff that I do a lot in my day job that we don't normally make room for on the show. So, yeah, I just did a play, so let's do it. Yeah. 
Uh, so that that might be that might be something we do. We'll we'll see. We'll see where we are in a week. Um, and then yeah, episode two hundred, Infinite Jest, working on it, making progress, made good progress this weekend, but it's uh it's a slog. So yeah, that's the big thing on the horizon. So if you're looking for something to read along with us, uh, that would be it. Or and at least like read up on it. To, like if you're listening to this, you just y'all have to promise to me that you cannot get too mad at me if I'm not like a hundred percent on board with the book. I'm not saying that that's going to be how I feel about it by the end of it, but I definitely right now I have a very adversarial relationship with this particular piece of literature. So (laughs) that's cool. (laughs) All right. I think that's everything. Uh, Thanks so much for listening guys. Uh, We will be back next week. Uh, Our live show bonus episode is going to post on Wednesday or Thursday. So uh, look for that. I think it went really well and I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, until next time, try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast. <laughs>